0: Welcome to Have You Heard the AABP Podcast. My name is Dr. Fred Gingrich. I'm the Executive Director of AABP. And today we are joined by a past president of AABP who actually came to the AABP office today to uh, record this podcast, and that's Dr. Dan Grooms. Dan, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, please?
1: Well, thanks, Brandon. First of all, it's great to be here and to, to, to come back to my old stomping ground here in central Ohio. Uh, I came back to see some family, but uh, but it was nice to be able to come up here and visit, uh, visit you and the, and, uh, and the gang here at the office. So uh, thanks for having me. I, I very much appreciate it. So...
0: Wonderful. So, Dan, let's start off. Let's talk about your membership in AABP. How did you get involved uh, in AABP? And maybe, do you remember who got you involved in AABP?
1: I do. So, um, so, first of all, I think I've been a member since I graduated in 1989 from the Ohio State University. That's right. Uh, and so, and I, and I was a member of the of the food animal club at at Ohio State, and uh, and back then I had many mentors at Ohio State, so Bruce Hall, Glenn Hoff's former president, uh, Kent Hoblet, uh and and the list goes on and on. And those are the folks that were members of AVP at that time and said and talked about the importance of being part of organized veterinary medicine, whether it be AABP or the ABMA or, at that time, the Ohio Veterinary Medical Association. So really it was those mentors talking about the importance of, of organized medicine to the future of our profession. And so uh, so hats off to those folks <laughs> for being great mentors to me. So.
0: Wonderful. And you you became president of AABP? Uh,
1: I did. I uh, uh, So I, I got involved with AABP. Uh, initially, actually being uh, part of the AMSTETS, uh, uh, uh Committee, scholarship committee, and so uh, I kind of took an active role in that when I was in academia at, at Michigan State University. So saw the importance of of raising money to support the education of, of our uh, of our future uh, members, and uh, so I became involved with the Amstutz Committee and became chair of that, and then that moved on to some other things, but eventually was nominated to become. Uh, president and and uh, was so honored to be uh, in a leadership role with this an organization, and uh, I I remember those 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 years fondly. So, very much so.
0: <laughs> And now you're uh, what we call a has been and on the Ford Planning Committee. All of our past presidents, I I really think that that is a great committee uh, where they are on the Ford Planning Committee uh, life sentence yeah. uh, on that yeah. committee, but we really appreciate it. And Dan actually was one of the people that started to get me involved with AABP, and we were chatting about that since our conference has been in Milwaukee this year, and we were in Milwaukee, it'll be 10 years, we were there in 2013, Dan was the program chair at that conference, asked me to be the dairy sessions coordinator, uh, and so I guess the point in this is to our listeners, if, if, if you know someone, encourage them to get involved in AABP, join a committee, uh, uh, and demonstrate to them the importance of their value to organized veterinary medicine. So Dan is currently the dean uh, at Ohio, at Iowa State University, uh, and we have several uh, deans that are members of AABP. And I wanted to interview one of them for our podcast. But let's talk a little bit about your career, Dan. You know, where did you start out when you graduated from veterinary school from Ohio State, and then how did you go down that path into academia? What were some of your interests, and then eventually becoming a dean?
1: Sure. Well, when I graduated from from Ohio State in 1989, I actually went home to uh, to Mount Gilead, Ohio, uh, kind of central Ohio, and was in a mixed animal practice for uh, just a little bit over four years. But um, but one of my mentors from Ohio State had talked to me about potentially coming back at some point and doing an advanced degree, and that was Dr. Kent Hoblitt. And so uh, there became an opportunity at Ohio State to. Uh, to, to uh, apply for uh, a graduate program which was based in Worcester at the Ohio Agriculture Research and Development Center. So, I was lucky enough to be selected for that, uh, for that program. So, I spent four years at Worcester, um, completed a graduate program, and then uh, was very fortunate to um, to land a job at Michigan State University at their College of Veterinary Medicine where I spent 20 years, you know, really focused on supporting the livestock industry in, in Michigan, especially the cattle industry, uh, through an extension role, and then doing kind of applied research around infectious diseases, and then most importantly, uh, teaching, uh, teaching students and uh, you know, helping them to realize their career goals of being a veterinarian. So, I spent 20 years at Michigan State, really loved it, um, and you know, uh, uh, just had a great time both interacting with students, faculty, staff, and, and really the, the folks of, uh, of Michigan. But then an opportunity came. Uh, was was asked to look at uh, an opportunity at Iowa State, uh, and so applied for uh, the, the dean position at Iowa State in in 2018. And was uh, fortunate and again very honored to be selected to to take on that role. So I've been in that role now since uh, really four years now, fall of 2018, and and. Outside of a little pandemic kind of in the middle of those four years, it's it's been a great four years. Uh, The pandemic, just like everybody else, uh, threw a curveball at us and some challenges that that we had to work through. But, you know, in all honesty, um, our faculty, our staff, our students, um, our leadership at our our university, um, I I think um, we did a great job of managing, um, you know, you know some difficult situations, but we are able to manage it and come out the other end in a good place. So very fortunate to work with a great team at Iowa State. Yeah,
0: certainly everyone impacted by that, and what a tremendous challenge, especially on our uh, on our academic colleagues. But can you talk a little bit, uh, Dan, about what your day to day life is like as a dean? I'm sure it's. Uh, Varies a bit each day,
1: and you're probably pretty busy. Yeah. Well, no two days are alike. There's no doubt about that, and, and it and it varies day to day from from just working with with individual faculty or or members of our leadership cabinet to to uh, teaching. I still do a little bit of teaching oh, cool. on, on occasion. Um, to you know managing, uh, we currently have a large capital construction project going on. We're building a new diagnostic lab, so interacting with the the Architects and the, and the building team around that project, keeping that move forward to, to interacting with our stakeholders. And uh, I, I was just Donna and I, as we were dro- driving here, Donna is my wife. We were driving here and we we're talking about this coming week. And you know, I have meetings with the Turkey Foundation tomorrow, the Iowa Pork Producers on Friday. Um, uh, we have an IBMA legislative meeting on Wednesday, and then and then we end up the week. Uh, I'm on the, the board of directors of the uh, of the Blight Park Zoo in Des Moines, and so we have our Christmas party on <laughs> Sunday. So, but again, all those are, are important stakeholders of our college, and so that's an important part of my role is interacting with them and talking about them, what we're doing, listening to them as to what they're looking for from a college of veterinary medicine and how we can best serve them as we go forward. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, you know, one of the goals I wanted to do with this podcast was, is that I, I want our members to know that, you know, we have members across the spectrum of bovine medicine, private practitioners, students, industry, government, academia, um, and retired, uh, members and, um, I want us all to understand the challenges and successes that each of us have uh, in our daily lives as bovine uh, veterinarians. Because I'm pretty sure Dan still considers himself first and foremost to be a cattle veterinarian, like all of us do. Doesn't matter what you do on a day to day basis, right?
1: I, I so, do. When when, it, when anybody asked me what I did, yeah. what, what I did, what I did before I was a veterinarian or before I was a uh, the dean of the college, veterinarian, I said I was a cow veterinarian.
0: Yep, and, that's uh, right, and that's what
1: I talk about. Yes. Yeah, At my heart and soul. That's right.
0: That's right. And so, you know, um, we all are aware of the issues we have right now. Primary issue probably that we're facing as a, as a profession in veterinary medicine, but maybe even more critical in bovine medicine is recruitment and retention to rule mixed bovine practice. It's an important issue for our members. I was just at a meeting last week where I showed that Since June 1, we have 124 active jobs on our job board. Since June 1st, we get about 150 new student members into AABP, and so they probably all have jobs. And so, you know, we we definitely, uh, I think we can all agree that we have some workforce challenges right now. Dan, what are some of your thoughts, you know, as a cattle veterinarian and in your role in academia Um, about how can we get more students interested in bovine practice, number one, but number two, retaining them in bovine practice, which is a recognized problem that we have too.
1: Sure. Well, I guess the first thing is just to, first of all, I think we need to recognize that that we have a shortage in our profession in general, across the entire profession, Uh, whether we're talking about uh, uh, bovine veterinarians or small animal. Veterinarians, or, or veterinarians working in in government jobs, like with USDA FSIS, or yeah. even in academia. I mean, I think if you talk to most every dean right now, they will tell you that one of our biggest problems is 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 uh, faculty recruitment and retention. Uh, um, so it's so it's not something that's just unique uh, to rural veterinary medicine or bovine veterinarians, but. But uh, but certainly a problem that we're facing right now. But but I think our I think within rural veterinary medicine and bovine practice we have some unique challenges. Um, I think uh, first of all I think no doubt that that we are struggling with recruiting folks that are interested in working in, in kind of rural veterinary medicine in general or more specifically bovine medicine. And, and you know that that that's a problem of really getting more and more students to think about this as a career, uh, whether it's students are already in veterinary school or students coming into veterinary school. And, uh, you know, as a veterinary school, we can only admit who applies. And so if there aren't people from rural Ohio or rural Iowa or rural North Dakota, you name the the state, then then we can only select from what's actually applying to us. And the same thing, if we don't have folks that are interested in working within the cattle industry applying to veterinary school, then we're gonna have less of those folks to choose from to begin with. So so I think, first of all, it's imperative for us as a profession, um, as cow veterinarians, to start uh, talking to prospective students or people or, or providing mentorship about you know, what it's like to be a cow veterinarian, what it's like to be a bovine practitioner, and, and then advocating for that or mentoring folks to think about this as a potential career choice. Cause, because until we have more people in the pipeline, you know, actually applying to veterinary school, for us, we can't do a whole lot about it. Um, other than specifically selecting for those people, which is difficult to do if you don't have a, if you don't have really highly qualified people to select from. So I think that's one of the first things that we as a profession, or we as bovine practitioners, is really advocating for this as a career to young and upcoming people, in, especially in rural areas. I do believe that, um, although there certainly are great examples of people that came from urban and suburban areas that go on to work within, uh, rural, rural areas within worldwide practice. The vast majority of them, vast majority of them start in a rural community. And so they have experiences with the cattle industry, with animal agriculture, livestock, uh, rural lifestyles. Those are where the vast majority of our practitioners come from. So trying to, trying to really recruit from those areas, I think it's really important. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And, uh, I think, a. Potentially a big challenge that you all face in academia is that it seems like There's a lot more knowledge out there now and there's more and more that students students need to learn mm-hmm. and People that are hiring students. They seem to even be Generally speaking, they want those skilled students to have these skills mm-hmm. uh, and be ready to go mm-hmm. Uh, with mentoring, of course, but their expectations have probably increased a little bit, too, as salaries have gone up, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we just had some discussion on AABPL about, you know, what are some skills that students need, and, you know, certainly that varies based on beef and dairy practice, and now we have consultation skills, but, oh, they also need to know how to cut an LDA and do a BSE on a bull and all that. So, Dan, talk to us a little bit about the challenges of establishing your curriculum making sure that we're providing a well-rounded education, uh, but also addressing, you know, we know that food animals a minority of the profession, but addressing, you know, that need as well in your general curriculum, as well as preparing those students. It's got to be a huge challenge curriculum, right?
1: Yep. It is. And uh, so I think it's important for everybody to know that, uh, you know, basically the, um, our curriculum or our training programs are for at least at a very high level, dictated by by our accrediting body, which yep. is Council of Education, and so and so for us to be an accredited college of veterinary medicine, you know, we basically have to follow the guidelines that are laid down by our accrediting body, and and right now that is to train veterinarians um, to to potentially provide uh, medical services to all species. Okay, so 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 that's our baseline. Okay, so um, and. The honest truth is, is we can't provide all the the details or all the level of, of expertise to treat all species. So what we have to do is really create a great foundation, a great medical foundation through, you know, through anatomy and physiology and pharmacology and. You know, all theologies. Make sure we provide that great that great foundation, and then begin to provide them with with kind of the medical knowledge in, in the major species. Okay, so the major companion animals and the major food producing animals, and that's that's really what we try to do at a college of veterinary medicine. We can't train all veterinarians to, to be experts in exotic medicine or in wildlife or in zooing or or even from my perspective, an expert in the cattle industry. But what we can do is provide that solid foundation that they can build upon through great mentorship and the practices they go into, through continuing education, through organizations like ABP or, or other things. And they, and they build those more those more detailed, fine skills that make them really great practitioners over time. From my perspective, our goal is to really provide that that outstanding foundation that they can build upon over time, and uh, and I believe I believe every college of veterinary medicine does that. I believe we do it at Iowa State. Uh, We do some things where we add some more details at at different levels because we have, uh, you know, we have a. I mean, we're just known for that. For for instance, swine swine veterinarians in the state of Iowa. And we train a lot of people and mm-hmm. in the swine industry, and we have we have a lot of extra training programs around that. And other schools have, have kind of their specific uh, niches. But in the end, I believe that every college of veterinary medicine provides that really strong foundation that can be built upon uh, as, as they go on through their career.
0: Yeah, and it's probably challenging. One thing that was discussed recently on AABPL was research versus education. you got to mm-hmm. fill both of those buckets, too, as well. I mean, there's dollars associated with both of those things but it's important for colleges to create this research sometimes that those questions get asked at the college level correct
1: yeah Yeah. well as a land grant university i mean land grant universities were developed with three missions education research and outreach And, and and so that's that's part of what we do and frankly i mean the research Helps us to elevate our game when it comes to educating our students, to be honest with you. Our our research and our service missions are, are 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 intimately integrated with our educational mission. And I believe, I firmly believe, that we actually can provide a better education because we have that research mission and we have that outreach mission. We have a teaching hospital, we have a veterinary diagnostic lab where our students have that opportunity to have those real, real or I, I don't want to call them necessarily real world, but those those value added experiences that, that really help them to be excellent uh, in their career.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't need to be mutually exclusive. Yeah. They can all work together. Yeah.
1: yeah. The other thing I just want to mention about the education and the council and uh, it uh, or accrediting bodies. So the the accrediting bodies continue um, and and probably rightly so to add add things to. Th- to the curriculum, or to what we need to uh, do as as part of our educational process. So things like um, like integrating uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion into our curriculums. Um, just recently, uh, is you know we're now required to. To expose every student to dentistry. Okay, so these are things that that historically weren't there as a requirement, but some schools did them, some uh, some schools uh, didn't. Uh, but now we're required to do these things, it's, and and so that that you know that just adds more to the plate that we have to do. And and I think it's all good stuff, but I think everybody needs to understand. But uh, you know, some things maybe don't get covered quite as well as they used to do, 10, 15, 20 years ago, because of the additional things we keep adding. Yeah. And, and until until, unless our profession changes where we have, you know, we, we train veterinarians just to work in the livestock industry or just in, continual anim, in companion animal industry, we're going to, we're probably going to have to continue to, you know, just really focus on that strong foundation going forward.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You know, and I think the other thing that a lot of us that went to school long ago, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Maybe don't understand is the rising cost of tuition at veterinary schools and higher education in general, right? I mean, it's not just limited to veterinary schools. I have two kids in college right now. I'm well aware of the fact that uh, that 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 the cost of education has increased. You know, you know, from your perspective as a dean, Dan, you know, how do you control these costs? Maintain ap- academic integrity. Integrity. You also have employees and faculty to pay, and they need more. You know their their wages increase every single year. You know, I in my job as AABP, I never used to realize what it costs to put on an annual meeting. I know how much a pint of milk costs at conferences now, and it's mind-boggling. Okay. And it's hard for people to understand that. So, talk about from your perspective some of those challenges. Why has tuition increased so much, and and what are some things that you think we can do as a profession to help with that?
1: So, um, so certainly the cost of education in general is, is a challenge, and um, and you know, and certainly in in professional. Uh, professional training programs whether it's veterinary medicine or medical schools I mean the, uh most students are graduating with significant debt and when I say significant it it varies but like at Iowa State our our students that graduate with debt are somewhere in the $140,000 range so um, <clears throat> but you know but the the challenges right now especially in a land-grant university is part of the reason that tuition continues to go up is that um, the kind of the investment within higher education by by state legislators has decreased, and um, like like within our college right now, currently our budget. Uh, so we have about a hundred thirty million dollar budget for the College of Veterinary Medicine, and um, roughly fifteen percent of that comes from the state of Iowa through through um, through uh, uh, um, state legislature money. Um, when I uh, ten years ago it was twenty percent, and if we go back far 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 enough. it's probably closer to hundred percent. So so right now only about fifteen percent of our entire budget comes from the state of state of Iowa. And, and you know, it is what it is. So we have to we still have a job to do, we still have people to pay, we still have the lights to turn on, we still, you know, have to have to maintain our buildings. So we have to come up with other revenue sources. And one of those revenue sources is tuition. And but we also look at other ways to raise uh, funds and revenues to offset that cost. Um, so, our, our veterinary diagnostic lab, our, our veterinary teaching hospital, fundraising, you ask what I do on a daily basis, <laughs> that's another major thing I do is, is help to uh, to raise money for our college. Um, and so, we continue to look for other sources of revenues to, uh, to, to slow down that, that increase in tuition. And offset the, the loss of funding that we might be getting from uh, from our state legislatures. And you know, I think I think most land grant universities are working hard to slow down that, that increase. Uh, but it's a challenge, to be honest with you. Um, right now, um, <clears throat> our tuition is about twenty uh, percent of our one hundred thirty million dollar budget. Okay. So uh, and and since I've been there, it's it stayed about the same. So yes, our tuition is going up, but but it's only twenty percent of our budget. But other things are increasing. So our hospital revenues is is is, is an increasing percentage of our revenues. Our, our diagnostic lab is an increasing percentage of our revenues. Fundraising almost up two hundred percent, and it's about five percent of our total revenue right now. Um, so so we're working hard on offsetting those costs and um, you know trying to slow down that that increase um, in tuition. Yeah. Uh, it- One of the things I was was doing these calculations earlier, um, right now um, through scholarships, through uh, through tuition reimbursements from some of our contract states, and then also through financial aid, we offset at Iowa State, we offset about 25% of the total tuition bill right now. And so, you know, it's it's still we still even with that, it, it results in, in about one hundred and forty thousand dollars in debt. But we're working hard on trying to try reduce that that overall cost as much as we can. So,
0: Yeah. And it's a uh, it's certainly a, a significant burden on students, but. It's it's not insurmountable. We have great success stories out there of students paying off their debt, getting into debt repayment programs. Yeah. Um, but I, I really appreciate those comments, Dan, uh, from your perspective as a dean. You mentioned it a little bit earlier, but let's talk a little bit about externship experiences. Yeah. You talked about we universities lay a foundation mm-hmm. um, of education, uh, and then we you know some people use real world. <laughs> to describe private practice, uh, talk about you know from your perspective as an academic, how important are those externship experiences for students, and maybe how can both practitioners and students get the most out of them?
1: Yeah, so so I'm a big proponent of of externships, preceptorships, whatever you want to call them. I I just think they're so important to allow our students to take that basic knowledge that that, that academic knowledge that they have um, that they have uh, have learned and then apply it in, in some real world settings and, um, and and I, I just, I just and it's more than it's more than just kind of the clinical exposure they get it's also, it's the exposure to communication uh, communication skills mm-hmm. with producers, farmers, or or other. If we're talking about bovine practitioners, with other agriculture professionals, the you know the the, the, the nutritionist or the you know we can go on and on. But but I also think um, I think one of the things that practitioners or folks that are offering externships can do is also um, is also talk about or. Uh, provide experiences in as to how a a young practitioner in Ashland, Ohio or Mount Gilead, Ohio, can add further value to the mm. community. So it's more than just being that clinical practitioner. It's all the other things they can do to really, to to really be a, a part of the community. Whether you know it's being, you know it's being part of local organizations, the school board. I mean the list goes on and on. Because I think that's. That's potentially what would be really attractive to, is uh, to folks coming back into rural areas to see how they integrate into a community more than just being that veteran. So, as part of these externships, I remember, so I remember I did an externship with Rich Myry. So, <laughs> Me Rich, too. <laughs> there you go. So, so, maybe that's why we're at <laughs> But, yeah. Uh, you know, I still remember uh, in Fort Recovery, Ohio, you know, Rich taking me to to different meetings and to, uh, you know, to visit, um, to, took me golfing and all these other things that, that just, you know, excited me about being part of a practice in a rural community besides mm-hmm. just the veterinary medicine, all the other things that kind of were exciting. So I think providing that mentorship to folks is, is really important. And I, and I also think, uh, because we just talked about the cost of education, um, you know you know most of our students, when you know you know, in their summers between their first and second year and second and third year and third and fourth year potentially, you know they're looking for ways to offset their cost of education. So I think paid externships um, are are very attractive to these students. and you know, um, you know, I I put on a, a paid summer program. I, I call it the Dean Summer Leadership Internship, and I pay these kids because I understand how important it is for them to have some income in the summer to help offset their cost of education. And so, so I think that's important for our practitioners to understand. Is I think these paid opportunities in the summer are, are really important to these kids going forward
0: as well. I agree completely. Uh And Dan also is a foundation board member for AABP. AABP provides $40,000 a year in externship grants. But also uh, uh, in Dr. Godden's president's message for our December newsletter, she mentioned the importance of paid externships. That's a great tip, Dan. I really think that the number of people that we have listening to this podcast, the number of AABP members, if you offer a paid externship, there's also the benefit to you isn't just – that you get to meet somebody that's a really great up and coming practitioner because you will. It's also a great place to meet associates. You know, when we talk about this challenge uh, veterinarians have in getting associates, that's a that there is a return there. I found all of my associates through my externship program. Yeah. Every one of them, um, and it's a uh, it's it's just a great way to meet uh, associates. And when we talk about, you know. Um, Dr. Hodges at our keynote address called it expanding the herd when we're looking at who can we recruit uh, into veterinary medicine in general uh, and then into bovine practice. Talk a little bit about diversity, equity, inclusion from the academic perspective and how can we in rural communities make sure that we are being inclusive and we're welcoming everyone to practice on cattle. Maybe people that, you know, we talked about a lot of people are from rural uh, parts of the country, but those that are not. How can we make sure that we're welcoming them to practice in academia, applying to veterinary school, and getting into
1: our practices? Sure. Well, uh, first of all, um, I just want to congratulate uh, AABP for for really um, stepping up and, and looking at and thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion within uh, within um, the bovine ranks of veterinary medicine. Certainly, uh, a a um, ABMA, AABMC and other organizations have recognized that, that we as a profession are, are not very diverse and they, they understand and recognize that diversity um, is really important. Um, as we move forward in, in making sure that we deliver um, you know, health care uh, at, at the highest level, whether we're talking about to animals or also uh, to you know, protecting human health is, is important as well. So, so really making sure that we have a diverse profession is, is from my perspective, uh, imperative as we go forward in delivering um, the best health care to animals. Whether we're talking about companion animals or cattle or swine or the poultry industry, it doesn't really matter and also, most importantly, protecting uh, human health as well. So again, congratulations to ABP for really uh, stepping up on this and and looking at how we uh, can diversify our specific niche of the the profession. Um, And I think it's important just to understand why that's important. Um, And as we look at, as we look at at really the workforce of, of agriculture in general, or specifically the livestock industry, it's becoming more and more diverse, especially the workforce. And so having Having practitioners or veterinarians that can interact with uh, that diversifying workforce, uh, folks that understand the culture, can communicate well, uh, is really imperative to to continuing that um, high-level health care, both in taking care of the animals and also making sure that the the food produced by the animals that we care for uh, is of the safest and highest quality. So I think that, that that's really imperative, and and it really starts with with us as a profession being welcoming mm-hmm. to everybody, uh, to everybody that's different than us. Okay, you know whether we're talking about di- folks with different color skin or from different. Um, from different uh, uh, ethnicities or races, or from different genders, or from different sexual orientations—I mean, whatever, whatever dimension of diversity that you want to talk about—it really starts with us being welcoming and opening uh, to those folks. And again, um, uh, you know, every college of veterinary medicine, every organization is is realizing this and working hard to to become not only diversifying folks that come into our organizations, but also most importantly being welcoming to them. And that's really an imperative. I agree.
0: I agree. Uh, Finally, Dan, as we wrap up, you know, with your involvement in AABP, as well as other veterinary associations, you know, what role do you think organized veterinary medicine has in improving recruitment and retention in bovine practice? How can we, uh, as an organization and as individual members make sure that we not only are recruiting people to bovine practice, but we're encouraging them to stay in bovine practice and enjoy it, yeah. which I think we both have <laughs> throughout our careers. We have.
1: So I, I think, um, you know, I think the important thing here as, as, as an organization is exposing our members to to uh, the things that are going to be necessary to navigate change going forward. So there is no doubt um, that students graduating from Iowa State University or Kansas State University or the Ohio State University or are looking for different things in their careers as they go forward, okay? And we can talk about all what those things are. It's you know, it's it's work-life balance, it's wellness, it's benefits, it's diversity. It's, there's a lot of things that, that 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 folks are looking for today, and I think it's really important that that our our bovine practitioners that are out there that are hiring folks know what those changes look like and start adapting and changing so that they are attractive to the next generation of bovine uh, veterinarians out there. And I know in Iowa, this is something we've been working really hard on: is trying to is is trying to educate, uh, especially rural practitioners, on what it's going to take to be able to recruit somebody to come and work in your area. Um, you know, the days of you know working seven days a week on call all the time, you know, you go on and on the things that we used to do when we were in practice are just not going to cut it going forward. So I think as an organization, if we can. If we can help to expose our members or educate our members about, you know, what the practice of the future might look like and how do you start getting to that practice of the future so that you remain competitive and attracted to the next generation of cow doctors, you know, what can you do today to start doing that? And I, I think that's one of the things... That we, as an organization, and I—I I don't necessarily have all the answers, but there's a lot of people out there, a lot smarter than I, that have good ideas, and I think that's where we need to start thinking about that. So. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, Dan, I really appreciate uh, you coming over here to do this podcast. Uh, I appreciate uh, you know your work in academia and uh, and your volunteerism to AABP. I want to remind our members uh, that. You know, welcoming and inclusivity starts with you. And so make sure that you are uh, welcoming people to uh, the profession. Encourage those kids in your community to apply to veterinary school. As Dan said, they can't accept them if there's no application. Encourage them to apply and and be positive about about the future of veterinary medicine. I'm certainly positive about the future of bovine practice, and I think many of us are. Uh, And I also want to encourage you to... Uh, identify um, colleagues that you think would be uh, willing to volunteer time with ABP. Encourage them to join a committee. Every single person that I've spoke to that's been involved with ABP, they started in a committee, and so would encourage you to ask your colleagues that are ABP members uh, to to join a committee. And then finally, uh, since Dan is a member of our foundation board, I'm going to put a plug in for our foundation. Scholarships are a great way for us to help some students offset the cost of tuition, uh, as well as externship grants. So uh, we're going to put a link to donate to the foundation in the show notes. I would encourage you to donate to the foundation to support the mission of the foundation, which is clinical research, but also supporting students. So I would welcome you to do that. Dan, thanks so much. Really appreciate you joining us today.
1: Thanks, Fred. Appreciate being here.